Hi there, welcome to the Value Through Vulnerability podcast. I'm your host, Gary Turner, and today I bring you another just sensational, and I don't use that word lightly, um, conversation with Richard Gerber. Richard's the author of multiple books, including Change and a superb recent book called Education, A Manifesto for Change. He's an international speaker, ex-headmaster of a challenging school in Derby in the UK that he helped turn around, and a really inspirational speaker and connector. Three of the major insights I took away from our conversation uh, when he joined me for the Free Online Have Courage Summit earlier in 2019 was some insight from Barack Obama, um, which was that most, if not all, of the suggestions that were made from Barack Obama's aides were technical um, in thinking, uh, in solution, whereas all of the needs were actually human um, for those solutions. So it's really interesting that we still have this myopic focus on technical competence over emotional human competence, which is so interesting. Um, he speaks about the, uh, the link between curiosity and courage, which is interesting. And I also thought it was fascinating hearing Richard talk about the beyond the shiny new thing. And I'll let you have, have reflect on your own interpretations of what Richard may be speaking to. Uh, but please join us in conversation. It was, I won't say it's a favourite, but it's one of my favourites, if I'm going to be honest. Um, conversations that I had as part of the Have Courage Summit. I don't know why. I've seen Richard present a couple of times. I've met him in real life. Incredible, energetic human being. And yeah, I absolutely, yeah, something, something deeply touched me with this conversation. All of the conversations genuinely moved me. They really did. But there was something about this one that, yeah, particularly resonated alongside a couple of the other Have Courage Summit conversations. So we'd love to know what resonates with you. Uh, you can find the contact details for Richard both within the show notes themselves, but also within the free Have Courage ebook, which you'll also find a link to in this, um, uh, into, in the show notes. My apologies. So until next conversation, have a great day, whatever you're doing, and uh, thanks for joining us. Welcome to the Have Courage Summit. This is a summit dedicated to help you get out of your own way and to help unleash some of that potential that sits within you. Today, I'm so grateful to welcome Dr. Richard Gerber onto the show. Good, good morning. Hello there, Richard. Hi, how are you? It's great to be with you. So looking forward to this, Gary. Really, really appreciate your time. Thanks for that. Um, yeah, I'm really, really well. And for those that are watching us may not know you. So Richard is an internationally acclaimed author, international speaker. And I have to say it, Richard, friend of Barack Obama. Not many people can no. say that. No, honestly, that's the best introduction. You're, you sound like my mum, Gary. That's brilliant. Thank you very much. <laughs> my wife just called me a very naughty boy. <laughs> Just, just to give a bit of extra meat to Richard's successes. So I, I actually met Richard a few years ago or came across Richard's work. You can see in the, in the background a fantastic book called Change, which I found really, really powerful, really powerful. And the reason that's moved me a lot is I care a lot about education as well. And Richard's background, he turned around a failing school within two years to a national, international acclaim. So that's enough of me talking about you, Richard. Welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you very much. So as we get going, maybe is there anything else you'd like to expand on for the for anyone that's viewing us now? Just give a bit of extra context as to who you are, what your background is and what you're passionate about. Well, I mean, I, I think really the important thing to say is because like a lot of people, you know, when you, you have a, a CV that looks accomplished on paper, you know, people think, wow, that's uh, that's a that's an impressive body of work. And, and I guess all I want to do is to confess to people, you know, I never set about in any stage of my life to accomplish anything you've just very kindly uh, highlighted for me. 
um, I always describe my my journey as being really an, an adventure of accidents um, and and you know moments. All I when I look back, all I ever really wanted to be. I, well, I funnily enough, I remember interviewing my mother when I was about fourteen years old. She interviewed me when I was fourteen, rather sorry. I interviewed her a few years ago for a book I was writing, and she reminded me of the conversation we'd had, which was, "What do you want to do when you're older?" And as a fourteen-year-old boy, all I'd said to her was, "I'd love to spend my life um, performing and writing, and if I could ever get to that, that would be." And the amazing thing is that that you know, gravita gravitational pull has pulled those opportunities somehow towards me that have enabled me to end up with the kind of list of experiences I've had. But, you know, from being a teacher, which I never really considered until I started dating uh, a young woman who I really, really liked, training to be a teacher, um, and dragged my way into her life by saying teaching was a really meaningful profession. Um, and, and years later, we were still together. And when I finished my first degree, she'd remembered that conversation and so forced me to become a teacher. Um, <laughs> luckily, luckily for me, um, both relationships worked out. You know, I love education and my wife and I have just celebrated our silver wedding. So it's not OK. Um, right the way through to, you know, when I became a head, um, I didn't I didn't want to be the head of an award winning. I just wanted to be a head teacher of a school that did the best we could do for our kids. And then after that, you know, the career since writing books, speaking on stages, meeting Barack Obama, whatever it is, those were never moments that I planned for. Um, and I think what would be really interesting as we talk this morning and, and when people view this, is to realise that that hyper planning and belief that you have to hyper plan everything in order to feel successful and happy is, is probably not the right way to go about actually leading a happy and fulfilling life. That's just, um, what a wonderful introduction. Thank you for your humility as well, because you have been very successful, but I do, I love your messaging. And I think in a world of hyper-connectivity, hyper-busyness, people seem to sort of struggle. They seem to feel guilty to stop to yeah. some extent. I think, that's, I think that's absolutely true. You know, we were talking just before we started recording, um, Gary, you know, and, and one of the things I'm passionate about is, is giving myself permission to have time to think. Um, even during a work, I know, I know I'm very lucky because I don't sit in an office and, and have to work the way that so many people do. But even, you know, when I did, when I was working in a, which was a hectic and intense job, I've always believed you need to allow yourself time just to think. So, for example, you know, hopefully at some point today, I'll just take myself off for a walk for a couple of miles and just allow myself to think because I, and, and it, it's really interesting because the number of people you speak to who feel immense guilt, even if they're in their working day or even in their domestic day, where they feel, oh God, I've got to be busy. I've got to be doing something all of the time. And the truth is for me, the way I connect the world, the way I make sense of my environment, the things I'm involved in, the way I've always thought when I've, I've, I've considered writing a book or creating a speech, the greatest moments of enlightenment have always come when I've allowed myself to just stop and think. And I worry sometimes because I think in the world we live in today, really great people, because they don't have the time to look up and breathe and just allow their brains to settle a bit, never actually give themselves the opportunity to, to connect disconnected things in their mind which can often open really exciting and new pathways 
Yeah, it's, it's, it's super powerful. That for, for me, it's only been the last 12 months, I would say, that I've really recognized that myself. And, yeah. and there is something around consciousness, you know, allowing yourself to stop and let your mind and consciousness catch up to some extent. Yeah. Absolutely right. I think you're so right. That, that entire thing, it's that thing about just letting things settle. You know, we, our brains in the modern world are bombarded 24 hours a day, either through real experiences or significantly now through digital experiences mm -hmm. and social media. But we never seem to have the time just to let those neurons in our brain connect, just to allow ourselves mm -hmm. to consciously make sense of that that bombardment of stuff hitting it. I think it's only when you do allow yourself that time, you actually start to feel more in control of your own life, your own thought process. Because, you know, one of the things that really concerns me currently in the world is that you know, the rise in mental health problems and stress-related illness, even at a minor level, is often caused because so many people feel that they are losing of their lives that so much of what they're doing on a personal and professional footing is reactive and not proactive and and actually the only way we can regain that control is to find the time to allow our brains to just settle and make sense of the stuff that's happening around us then we can be proactively strategic rather than always reactively strategic. No, lovely. Well, part of what we wanted to touch on today um, for the view was around change, the title of your, your, your book behind you. I think we're sort of touching already, Richard, on one of the key challenges of change, which is to stop and allow yourself the time to embed change. Um, yeah. what, what is, what is, you know, why do you feel, as Richard, it's so difficult for people to deal with change? Well, I, I think it's, it, it's a perception based on our most common experience of change. For most people, um, and let's take a, a professional footing first, for most people, change in their workplace never feels like a good or cool or exciting thing because, as I've said already, A, it's usually reactive, mm -hmm. B, it's usually following a problem, so you are reacting to a problem, and thirdly, because most people's experience of change in a professional environment isn't really change, it's working harder. Because what we tend to do in professional environments, we're so busy, we're so wedded to the structures and systems that have become familiar to us. We're so um, trained to think about that kind of tailorist route of everything has to be about efficiency. But we just, we're addicted to silver bullets. We want, we want reaction quick. We want it neat. We want it systematized. We want it structured. And so people have change fired at them. It's something we have done to us. And it's something usually where the strategy and system has to fit on top of everything else we're already doing. So people's reaction to change that way is usually, oh my God, I'm going to have to work harder. We're being told what to do. There's nothing exciting and attractive about that. You know, change, everyone, that there, there are moments of change in everybody's lives we enjoy. And there are moments where we choose to change something, where we feel in control of it, and it's something proactive. So even if it's as simple, for example, of a new restaurant opening up on the high street, right? And, and you and your partner or friends deciding, let's go try the new restaurant out. Now, of course, there's a free son of fear because it's unknown and new. But actually, the main feeling is one of excitement because it's something you've chosen to do, and it's proactive and you're in control of it. 
And I think for me, that's the key when people think about change. It's how do we create environments around us? And if we're managing and leading people in a professional context, how do we create a culture where people feel they have an element of control over the change process, where they have an interactive element to be able to use and play with that process, and that it isn't always reactive, that there are real opportunities to try and develop something new. That makes change a far more exciting proposition. And, and in terms for the individual, because I'm really hearing that sort of what's in it for me mindset, which of course all of us have got, you know, change has to, should work for everybody. Yeah. Um, is there an element as well, we talk about courage, you know, is there something about also being accountable for your part of your own life and your almost challenging the status quo if you feel it is too fast or too aggressive in terms of change? Absolutely. I think, you know, courage in so much of what we're talking about, of what you're talking about in the bigger context, of the summit is so vital and so core to the theme of what you're talking about because you know take it all the way back take it back to the learning process which we've already talked about touched about on very you know it's where my background um to learn something new takes huge courage actually because to learn something new requires you to take a risk it requires you to be prepared to make a mistake it requires you to take a wrong turn it requires you to step out of your comfort zone. And it's a really interesting concept because the older we become, the less happy we are to step out of our comfort zone. So we learn at slower rate, the less happy we are to be involved in change. You know, I often say, I'm yet to meet an 18 month old child that's undergoing therapy because they can't cope with the rate of change in their <laughs> life, right? The truth is, any of us that have been around an 18-month-old child, we know they go loopy if change isn't happening quickly enough, right? Because they're so fired up, they're so curious, they're so investigative. And they, to them, they don't know that getting something wrong is bad. They don't know that, that, that they don't understand the nature of risk as a, as a bad thing. And so they're fired, they're curious, they're creative, they embrace change. But the older we become, the more difficult we find that. And I think a lot of that is to do, to do with courage because societally, we start to lay into people the idea that making a mistake is a bad thing, that, that taking the wrong route is a bad thing. Don't do anything until you're certain it's gonna work. You know, one of the great changes I lay before my former profession is, we have got to stop training young people to seek out certainty as the gold standard because that certainty exists less and less and less. And so what we have to do is two things. We have to change the way we develop young people now. We have to find a way to help our generation and, and, and the generations around our age that have long left education to recalibrate the way they see change and uncertainty so that they're more able to impact it. Yeah, it uh, resonates so much. I remember seeing, I think one of your mentors or friends, Sir Ken Robinson, uh, I remember seeing yeah. his his TED talk from what, 2006 now? Yeah, How schools yeah, still correct Yeah. It feels so, res so relevant today. Yeah, and yeah. more so. You know, it, it's really interesting. Um, you know, I know we'll probably come on to it, but I've been putting out to everyone the picture here because I just have to, because for anyone that doesn't know me, and I'm sure most of your audience have no idea who I am, I, what I try to do to validate myself is just stalk famous people. So there's, <laughs> I just, <laughs> The interesting thing about when I met 
him, and it was only recently. It was at the, the in the summer of 2018 when I met President Obama or Harry, I like to call him. Um, <laughs> um, we talked. We had a short amount of time, very short amount of time, to talk to each other. And one of the things that he said that really resonated for me um, was when he looked back on his eight years in the White House, um, and, and it's an unbelievable opportunity to be standing talking to a former president telling you about his experience, right? He said, when I look back on my eight years in the White House, what I've come to realize is that virtually none of the problems I had to deal with as president were technical by nature. They were almost all human, right? They were almost all to do with human emotions and reflex. He said, but the interesting thing is that as president, all of the people and all of the solutions focused group around you tell you or give you sorry technical solutions to the problems and he said and as i became more confident as president as i got deeper in that role and started to understand that challenge myself i started to understand that actually what i needed to do as president was have a greater courage in embracing and understanding the human issues behind those problems rather than always believing the solutions were technical my god that is such a powerful reflection isn't it? And exactly. And the thing is, to me, that if a guy who has literally changed the nature of the world made that connection and that deep-rooted understanding, that it, so much of it is about human behaviours, then I think it's a great and really resonant message for the rest of us, actually. Um, and, and what you realise in, in events since, you know, it, it strikes me, and I, I'm not going to get political because we don't want to get half an audience to turn off here, <laughs> but I think the analysis of what's happened in politics in the last couple of years is really interesting. Because in some ways, what people like Donald Trump, love him or hate him, what the events around Brexit, love it or hate it, have proved to us is the people that ultimately won those democratic processes were people that connected with, with their electorate on a human level, not on a technical level. And when you look back on why the, the if you like, the more, the more, um, the favourites for those elections lost, and you look back at their messaging, partly it's because so much of what they did was try and sell technical messages and technical solutions. And what we're seeing, if nothing else, is an absolute rise in the fact that people want to connect to human humanity and human messages to emotions. And I think we, need, we do well to remember that, not just in a, in a personal environment, but in our professional environment as well. Do you know something? That's such a wonderful thing to share. Like I say, I, I think it's very relevant for, for our audience there around courage because, yeah, whichever way you look at it, and you know, I, <laughs> I find it fascinating because I'm very much about everything being human-centered, you know, appreciate you joining yeah. today. But as a term, it's been thrown around for a while now, being more yeah. human. But I don't think we've really known what that me that's meant until recently. Not really. No. I agree. I agree with you entirely. And partly that's because I think um, what's really interesting is it's been regarded as something soft and woolly. Um, you know, I mean, I, for many years, like you, right, champions in our own ways, that whole thing around humanity, human behavior, human relationships. I've spent a lot of my professional life being told I'm soft and woolly, and that somehow, 
you know, it, it's all, oh, it's very easy to talk like that. You're some kind of, uh, not politically, but some kind of liberal free thinker who believes in unicorns and, and, and butterflies, right? And actually, the truth is, when you unpick most of the circumstances and situations, most of the people hopefully watching this have encountered in their lives, they're like Obama. You strip it back. And whilst we try and seek resolution through techni um, you know, technical and systemic, what you realize is most of those issues actually both started and cemented because of human reflex. And the solutions, the ultimate solutions came out of human interaction and human relationships. And I think for me, that, that's something that we're becoming more, I think it accelerated. I think once we, we witnessed and experienced financial crisis 2007, 2008, I think people started to realize they'd spent decades building their, their strategy around systems and structures. And I think that what they realized in 2008 was it was actually human capacity that was going to be able to cope with that level of change and uncertainty, which was founded on courage. Um, and, and when you think about it, in many ways, the lack of courage comes when you just seek answer and solace in systems and structures. Real courage comes from having the ability to confront things on a human level because developing a solution through human interaction and human relationship is far, far more complex and far scarier than the facelessness of designing a system and structure and implementing it hierarchically. That's a far safer option for people. Um, you know, and it's why I think we need to be, all of us, so much more courageous at allowing our human honesty, our human traits to take those professional masks off occasionally and actually really understand the depth of the power that come from those human interactions. Oh, my God, I've got a million... I want to extend this discussion to three hours, but, hey, I know I don't, <laughs> no, I don't have that. Do, do you know, so what I'm loving is how this is looping back as well to where we started, Richard, which is around stopping and getting present. Yeah. Because if you're going to connect on a human basis, this isn't about algorithms. You know, for yeah. us to really grow together as humanity, we have to yeah. see each other through each other's eyes. And that doesn't happen quickly. I think it's really interesting. I mean, there's a story I, I researched for um, my, my last book. Uh, and I think it's really relevant here. And I'm sure some of the, the viewers, some of the, the people who have, have been kind enough to, to log in and listen to what we're talking about will already know. But I think it's it's worth remembering. Um, you know, a few years ago, when Google really wanted to understand how their success had, had where their success had come from, they, they, they spent millions of dollars in two key research projects. Because, of course, they're Google. They've got the money. But they really wanted to understand it on an objective level. Why is it working? We can, as we grow and grow and grow, we can continue to hold the formula in place. And what came back to the two founders, Sergey Brin and Larry Page, was really interesting because Larry and Sergey are both geeks, right? By their own admission, they are, they are technical people. They are algorithmic geniuses. They are, they are truly extraordinary when it comes to the ability to code and program and understand the digital realm and data analytics. They're extraordinary. And what came back, because the two projects looked into what made the best leaders at Google and the second one, what made the most successful teams at Google? And when you look at the leadership strand, 
they were convinced that the people that drove Google's success were techno people. They were programmers, they were coders, they were the technical people like they were. When the findings of the research report came back, there were eight characteristics of the most leaders at Google. And the only one of technological significance came in eighth in order of importance. The top seven were all about human behaviors and human interaction. And I think, you know, again, we can all be accused if we want of being a bit woolly and, and unicorn-like. But at the end of the day, if a company as hard-nosed and as powerful as Google has recognized through its own analytical research that the power of Google stems mostly seven out of eight of times comes from the ability for its people to interact on a human basis. I think that's a significant message for all of us. That's, thank you for sharing that. And I believe it's a Project Aristotle, was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Project Aristotle is one of them. And the other is Project Oxygen. Oxygen, that's so right, yeah. It's not worth getting people to look it up if they're interested. All of that research is now available free on the internet. Really, really interesting stuff. Do you know, so another big thing for that, for anyone that's watching us as well. So I had, I had the pleasure of speaking with Amy Edmondson from Harvard Business School recently about yep. psychological safety. Wow. And I think, oh, and I, and I think yeah. this is another bridge, I think, from, for me, Richard, from getting from this old, out-of-date, mechanistic system base to this more human base is that safety element. And how yeah. do we make it safe for our families and our friends and ourselves to bring more of ourselves, be vulnerable, be courageous? So I think yeah. this safety element is becoming more and more important as well. I think, I think it's it. And by the way, the psychological safety was the number one most powerful asset in the Google research into what made the most successful teams. The best teams at Google all operated one under a climate of psychological safety. You're absolutely right. You know, for me, again, this stuff is more crucial than we could ever imagine and believe, both on a personal and a professional level. Because to an extent, we have made the mistake of believing that the best operative and modus for people is to be managed, right? To rely on others, whether it's our parents and our fam familial setup, whether it's in a professional environment. Most people rely on other people to find solutions and, and, and approaches for them. And, and what we have to be so much better at is self-leadership and self-management. And that can only come in a successful way if we're in a psychologically safe environment. I go back to my previous world. Kids learn 70 to 75% of everything they learn before they're five years old. And the most successful of those kids do so when they're, they're living in really settled and happy familial units, whatever that family might look like, and really settled and happy school educational units, right? And that isn't about technique and curriculum and how much the teacher drives stuff at them or the parent sits them down with flashcards. That's about a child living in a world where they feel happy and secure enough to try stuff, make mistakes, laugh at the mistakes they're making, learn from them, and then the addiction of curiosity that comes with that. And as adults, we need to find a way to recapture a little bit of that for ourselves. Because the real tragedy is the learning curve for most human beings kind of goes 0 to 5, 5 to 11, 11 to 16, 16 to 18, 18 to death. And just imagine what we could accomplish if we could maintain the, the emotional security of three fives and we could turn that graph back that way for us for the rest of our lives. 
Cool. Well, you got me buzzing, Richard. Do you know something? I, I think what I love is the term I've started using. You know, everyone talks about exponential technology. Yeah. What you've just beautifully done with your little hand diagram for the viewers is the exponential potential of human potential. Yeah. We, can't, we have got a curve that we're not even touching yet. Exponentially, yeah, we, because we are still stuck. I think you're right. And also, I think we need to be very aware, given what, exactly what you've said, is we need to stop this obsession with believing the answers always comes from the glittery and the new, that we're always seduced by the new invention, the new technology, the new power that comes from X, Y, and Z. And I think what we all need to remember is that the reason we've ever arrived at that, all of this, you know, whether it's going back to electricity, the wheel, let alone what we're existing in now, isn't because of systems and structures. It's because of our fundamental ability as human beings to be curious. And I think you're, you know, we sometimes we jettison the old because we think it's done with, and we believe the answers are always in what's to come. And I absolutely passionately believe, by the way, that we're on the verge of. So, you know, we're so obsessed uh, with the shiny new stuff that we get us so much of, of what comes from the past. And I, I've spoken to a lot of people around this. Again, if you take my former world of education, um, education over the last 30 or 40 years has been obsessed with silver bullets. What's new? How can technology improve education? What can the new brain science tell us about how better to learn? I often tell this story to people. You know, when I was, um, when I was seven years old, 1976, and it was the year for those uh, who are watching that were old enough to remember of the last great summer before 2018 in the UK, right? And it was, a, it was an amazing, it was the last time we had a proper long, hot, heatwave-driven summer. Um, and I remember being in a class as a, as a seven-year-old kid on a Thursday afternoon, um, going into class after lunch and sitting down and the teacher taking the register. And the classroom must have been 40 degrees and you know piping hot and she said we should be doing maths now do you want to do maths and i said i said along with 32 other classmates no we don't want to do maths." anyway because it was the days before you had to do um risk assessments and stuff like that she took us across the road it was an urban primary school we went across the road to the park and i remember to this day i don't remember much as a seven-year-old but i remember to this day sitting under a willow tree of an afternoon looking at the sun through the willow through the 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 fronds of the willow tree and just gently swaying i can i can like talking to you now i can feel it the grass on the back of my neck tickling away and the sound of my teacher's voice and as a seven-year-old child and let's face it we don't have many deep thoughts necessarily when we're seven but i remember it clearly thinking in that moment my god life will never get any better than this and that's something from the past and so i often urge people to remember human experience, human behavior, human interaction is always going to be the most meaningful agitator and catalyst in finding the solution and the drive forward in everything, everything that we do. And we have to have the courage not to believe the answer is yet to be invented. Do you know something? It's, it's so powerful as well. And you know, the reason I'm even setting up this summit now is because those experiences that I had, whether it be as bullying, bullying or whatever, they don't define me as a, as a person, but because yeah. I didn't talk about them, because the system that I operated within, I felt didn't allow me to, meant yeah. that I held on to those things for 30 years. So it's yeah. really, it's really, it's, it's sort of the other side of the same coin. Really interesting. It, 
it, it absolutely is. And it's extraordinary how many people get to our kind of age and generation where for the first time they feel they have the courage to exercise some of those experiences. And, and the first feeling they feel afterwards is one of release, but the second one is frustration because the number of times, I'm sure you've had this, where people of our generation will have had, finally had the courage to exercise some of those, that, that, that baggage from their history who go, God, why didn't I do that 20 years ago? <laughs> if only I'd done that 20 years ago, I'd be in a different place today. Um, and again, that comes down to, you know, maybe hopefully what we can do by sharing these stories is give people just a modicum of courage to say, you know what, I'm going to try that now. Because if I can do it now, it means it's all ahead of me. Whereas for, I'm coming up to 50 now and I'm thinking, God, I wish I'd had this kind of insight and ability to behave this way 30 years ago. Um, and I just hope people find the courage, whatever stage of life they're at now, to, to say, you know what, I'm just going to move away from our addiction to system structures, new things, technology, whatever it is, other people finding the solution for me. I'm just going to find the bottom of courage to say, you know what? I'm going to trust my instincts. I'm going to trust the way I think and behave and see the world. And I'm just going to act on it. Because I think if people take that first step, they realize that actually the opportunities ahead of them and, and the, the joy they can gain just from the simplicity of those behaviors make a massive difference to the way they view their own world. This is really funny. This might sound a bit woo-woo for some people, Richard, but you know something? I've had a lot of conversations the last three or four weeks with people and said to them, when has your gut, that signal in your body, ever been fundamentally wrong? And I'm not yeah. saying don't allow the logic to catch up, to analyze. I'm not saying be rash about everything. But when you stop and allow, really understand that feeling within your body, so few people can say that their gut was wrong, ever. Yeah. And by the way, I'll just add a caveat to that, because I think you're absolutely right. But the other thing I'd say is when you have got it wrong, you know, how often have you as a human being allowed yourself to just fall into total disaster? Because the other thing we need to do is trust our behaviors more. You know, no one can sit here. I can't sit here and say, you know, my life is just rosy. Everything's wonderful. It's all rainbows and gold at the end of it. You know, I have periods where professionally I have self-doubt, of failure, where I make crass mistakes, particularly as a speaker you know, one misplaced sentence, and you can create a lot of damage, right? And so no life is perfect. But what I've learned, particularly in the 11 years I've worked for myself and, and followed the passion as a speaker and as an author, I'm not, not going to make mistakes, but I do trust myself to find the solutions to them now. So even in moments of crisis, and you can't fast track this, I don't believe. But even in those moments of crisis where, let's just say my instincts got me into hot water, right? Mm -hmm. I trust myself enough to find a way out of it. And that's the other thing. It's courage and trust. I'm mm -hmm. not sure we trust ourselves enough. So we try and avoid problems, which is okay. I, recommend, I would never tell people to seek out problems or trouble. But what we don't do is trust ourselves enough to overcome adversity. And I think we need to realize we're better than we believe we are. That's lovely. Can you speak to that at all? Um, I'm conscious of time, Richard, but are there a couple of sort of tips or tricks or maybe experiences of your own where that, you know, trusting yourself better 
or trusting others better led to a, you know, a better outcome? I mean, I'll give you I'll give you one example that isn't me personally, actually, but it's a it's a young, a young lad I've, I've worked with for a few years um, and I won't name names, but he's mm -hmm. a professional cricketer. Um, and a number of years ago, probably 10 years ago, uh, he they reckoned he was going to play for England. He was going to captain England. I think he was the youngest ever player. He was when he made his first class debut for a county in, in professional cricket. Which for those that don't know, cricket is a is big news. That would be like a 16-year-old playing for a premiership football club. I mean, it's, it's, it's a big story, right? Um, and what happened was he'd been so used to succeeding as a kid because he was so phenomenally naturally talented um, that he'd never hit a moment of adversity. Right. He'd always been better than everybody else. But he suddenly, when he got onto the county, so the first class cricket circuit, of course, found himself surrounded for the first time in his life with people who were as good, if not better than him. Mm. And he started to fail. And he started to fail occasionally big. And he then became so riddled with self-doubt that he, for the next few years of his professional career, it was really a story of constant failure. Nothing seemed to go right for him. He dropped down levels from really top, top level teams and eventually found himself at a really low level county and maybe just two or three months away from his career coming to an end because coach is going, look, we're really sorry. You just, you're not gonna fulfill your potential. Um, and at that time I, I got to know him and we started talking to each other. And one of the things that I think was really pertinent, he said to me, was Richard, he said, you know, I've not been short of advice over the last 10 years of adversity. So since things started to go wrong, there's people all over my life willing to tell me what to do and how to do it. And I turned around to him and said, let's just stop there, because I think that's partly the problem. He was so desperate to do well, not just for himself, but for all those people. He felt he owed a debt to his mom, his dad, his early coaches, you know, the people paying his wages that he was taking to the cricket field as a batsman, right? And he was having guys throw very hard balls down at him at 90 to 100 miles an hour. Now, for most top-class cricketers, you're making decisions in hundreds of seconds. Otherwise, you're going to be out, or worse, you're going to get hurt, right? And the problem was so many things were whirring through his mind, going, I need to do this, I've been told, I've got to do this, I've got to do that. Those hundreds of seconds were now becoming indecisive. And by the time he had to make that decision, the ball had gone past him because his brain was filled with so much external advice. And actually what we did, not just me and him, but people, we started to unpack that. And eventually we got him to a place where he was confident enough to trust his own instincts again. And as a result, He's now a captain in first-class cricket. He's one of the most highly regarded uh, players in his position in, in the professional game. But we had to unpack all of that rubbish and over time get him to trust his own instincts again in order for that to happen. So the problem wasn't that he lacked talent or ability or desire or ambition, but he was so desperate to try and fulfill everybody else's advice that he'd forgotten that his talent lay in himself. And I think for me, that's one of the most powerful examples I've seen firsthand of exactly what we're talking about. And it was only when he had the courage to trust himself again, that he was able to fulfill his potential. Brilliant, such a thank you for sharing that. I think that's a really powerful example.
really part and, and, and it just, just shows you how much our thinking gets in our own way yeah absolutely you know it happens to all of us all of the time um the number of people who say to me my friends and former colleagues say god richard i wish i could do what you could do well the truth is i'm no more talented than anybody else and when i look back on the career i've had you know that where we started this happy series of one thing I say to people is I've always been prepared to trust my instinct. And, and I think the biggest moment for me was, you know, I was the head teacher of what had become a really successful, globally renowned school. I had a great salary, a really good pension, a great job where I had a high profile, where success was definitely on the card. You know, and, and seven years into that job, I left, gave up a pension, gave up a salary, gave up status and gave up a position. Because instinctively, something just said to me, you know what, this new world that's opening up over here, just trust, you know, that voice in my head was going, trust yourself. This could be a really exciting adventure. And 11 years on, I've not looked, and if I hadn't have made that choice, I wouldn't have met Barack Obama. I wouldn't have written the books I've had the privilege to write. And I think that's the trait that I have, that some of my friends perhaps don't, who go, God, I wish I could do what you could. Because my answer to them is always the same, well, go on then. Yeah. And then they'll come up with 10 reasons why they can't. And the only difference between me and them, maybe I just was more arrogant. Maybe I was ignorant enough not to have an idea of what could have happened. But I went, you know what? I'll find a way to make those 10 things work. And I think that's, that's what we need more people to be able to do. Yeah, so I think it's a wonderful way to sort of wrap, wrap our chat up, Richard. I think for anyone listening to us, you know, I've gone through this summit is about me stepping into that action space. You know, fundamentally, yeah. I don't know what it means. I don't know. Hopefully it's helping people. But fundamentally, yeah, get off the sidelines, get in, get in, get on the park and just get involved. And I think yeah. it might be bloody sometimes. It might get messy. But we're human beings. That's what happens. <laughs> yeah, absolutely right. And I think that's the really the last thought I want to give people is you, you, you don't seek to control the outcomes of things that haven't happened yet. And be prepared to make mistakes and have the courage to know that you'll overcome them. And if you go into the, the, a new way of seeing the world with that level of clarity, you will be okay. But don't beat yourself up because it's not all going to go perfectly. But just believe you have the capability to overcome the challenges you face. Wonderful. How can people reach out to you if they want to follow up a conversation or, or learn more about your work after this, uh, this conversation, Richard? Well, look, there are a number of ways, and I try and connect with as many people as, uh, who, who take the trouble to, to contact me as I can. So they can find me through my website, which is www.richardgerver.com, or through Twitter, which is just at Richard Gerver. And I promise people that if they connect with me on a personal level, I will get back. And I can vouch for that. The reason we've got very, very kind and generous Richard on this uh, conversation now is after we met, after connecting with your book a couple of years ago. So look, you've been an absolute joy, Richard. Thank you for your time. Uh, it's my absolute pleasure. It's been an honour. Thank you so much, Gary. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.